You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thank you for starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting. Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Bangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today name's John Wexler. And if you haven't heard of him, then you've probably had your head in the sand for the last few years here in central Indiana, especially. He is a pioneer. He's an entrepreneur. And more than that, he's a patriot. He's a veteran of the United States Army as a combat engineer, and we're going to talk about that. John, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Robert. Well, you know, I, I just I'm not tech savvy enough to hang out with you. So I just I need to make sure that if I get you on the podcast that you don't make me sound like too much of a Luddite. John, I don't, is, I don't think that's going to happen. And <laughs> maybe we, we do our next one at that great Italian restaurant that we met at downtown not long ago. Iozo's, it is a wonderful place. Yeah. Exactly right. And you had the dessert. Absolutely. It was incredible. <laughs> we shared it, though. I will tell you, my wife and I, we decided we would be reasonable and we shared that. It was outstanding. <laughs> John, tell us, uh, the Leaders and Legends audience, a little bit about your background. You're um, an Indiana kid and you've left, as like Mitch Daniels says, go do something else, but then always come back to Indiana and do good things. And that's exactly what's happened. Well, let's hope on the do good things part of that. I, I, yeah, I grew up on the northwest side of Indy, Pike Township, and ended up uh, going to the military right out of high school. I was in the Army for a, a brief stint, long enough to qualify for the funding that I needed to get to college. That was the way I decided to pay for my school. Other family members have done it other ways. I had a, a brother that went to Michigan and played football for Bo Schembechler. And, you know, we all have to kind of find our path to paying our way. And mine was signing up for service. So that was probably the pivotal point in my life where I really learned the kind of that, that hard work uh, ethos and and kind of put your head down and get the job done that I'd say still is something I carry today. But I came back and I enrolled at IUPUI in downtown Indianapolis and then spent some time in Bloomington, did an overseas studies program in Maastricht, the Netherlands, and started my career at IBM. From that point, I was basically an entrepreneur from really the mid-90s on. And I've spent, spent a lot of time kind of building entrepreneurial ventures and mostly in the technology and innovation space. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad. You know, I've always known that I'd be a Hoosier. You back home. I spent a couple of years away uh, in the military, but then also a stint in California. And, and this has always been home, though. You were at Pike High School with two other 
I think you were there at the same time, perhaps, to other guests on the Leaders and Legends podcast. The first one is Professor Peter Carmichael, who heads the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College and is an IUPUI graduate before he went on to get his PhD at Penn State, I believe. And this other guy who is kind of, you know, I don't know, I'm not really sure how how he's going to end up in his life because he just really hasn't done much so far. And that's Eric Holcomb, uh, our favorite governor, who has been a terrific, terrific presence for Hoosiers the last few years. He was a wonderful guest, a terrific guy. Do you Were you all there at the same time? We were close. We intersected. I think your friend, Dr. Carmichael, may have even been the same year as I. The governor, I think, was a couple years behind. But I can tell you right now, they, they are in the stratosphere. They're, they're like 747s that fly over our communities. And I might have been orbiting in a Piper Cub somewhere around that same area. But we, we didn't actually know each other at Pike. But I've since run into several other interesting Pike alums, including Peter Dunn, Pete the Planner. I know Tim Sindrick went to Pike. Mark Monteith went to Pike. And so you kind of look at that era of Pike High School and we're all kind of feeling pretty good about uh, the way, you know, things are, are playing out here. So a lot of really cool people doing some some neat things. Mark Monteith was was a guest on the podcast a few years ago. He was terrific, just like his writing is terrific. He's a wonderful writer. There's also Michael Solari, who went to Pike Township. I should mention him, a good friend. What did what do you think stayed with you, not just from Pike, but from being in public school, being in that environment, and then going directly to the Army? I went from Howe High School from Indianapolis Public Schools directly to the Army. And because of the diversity and just sort of the atmosphere, there really wasn't that much of a transition just in terms of interpersonal relationships and the people you meet. Did you find that a lot of what you learned at Pike, you learned in the Army, and a lot of the people you were friends with at Pike were the type of people you hung out with in the Army? Yeah, I would say I think there was an amplification that happened when I went to the Army of those lessons uh, learned growing up. I would say that, you know, growing up, you know, suburban indie at the time, it felt a little more rural, I think, than it, it does today. But Pike Township was, you know, still it wasn't quite the frontier, you know, but I mean, it was it wasn't quite as uh, populated and it didn't seem as busy. And so a lot of times, you know, we were just outside, like, you know, just as kids, you know, climbing trees, throwing rocks, doing whatever we could do, catching crawdads in the creek. And, you know, I think that, you know, stimulated a curiosity for me that today is just you know turbocharged with my career in technology and innovation and that is to always be curious right to wonder what would happen if you did this and play with that you experiment and that's really really what we're doing right now in a company that I've I've just launched and that is rapid experimentation right and we're trying to find our way and I think that's kind of what it's like to that was like at least for me what it was like to grow up in Pike Township and, you know, when I went into the military, I will say that it was probably the moment in time where I entered the first meritocracy that was just purely based on what you delivered. It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter what you looked like. Uh, it didn't matter really even what you had done before. But when you walked in and they shaved your head in basic training, <laughs> it was then game on and whatever you brought to the game was going to dictate where you went from that point forward. And from there, I would say, you know, I've never looked back. So I'm 54 years old as of this recording. I think you and I are roughly the same age. Mm -hmm. I have said and asked other guests on the podcast, growing up in the 70s and 80s next to the birth of my kids is the greatest thing I ever experienced. 
looking back on the 70s and 80s, what do you think of that time and, and how fun was it to grow up when things were perhaps a little less sensitive and this network called MTV changed everything? Oh, man, I remember the first time I saw MTV and we didn't even have cable, by the way, in our apartment. We grew up, you know, with very modest, you know, in a modest neighborhood, modest, you know, poor. I mean, we, we were we were economically constrained, let's call it right. We, we had no idea, actually what that meant at the time as kids, but we didn't even have cable. And I remember the first time I was at someone's house that had cable and MTV was on. I'm like, what? Wait a minute. What is that? <laughs> and it really was a, a moment. Like I remember re- really where I was and, and when it happened and I can kind of picture it happening right now. But, you know, I, I would I would link a lot of my my experience in life and my sense of humor, my likes and dislikes even to the music of that era, because that was a really big part of growing up, right? And so, you know, just classic rock and roll. You know, when you you put on an, uh, a, a track of a, you know, you name it, Aerosmith or from Boston to Foreigner, ACDC, whatever, something like that is kind of stirs a little bit of the memory banks up for me. And I will say that kind of growing up in that era, you, you had three channels and you had to get up to change the TV, by the way, you didn't even have a remote. And I don't know. It just it gave you the ability to focus, right? You didn't have such a wide array of choices that you just went from one to the next to the next. You'd go deep dive on a on building a treehouse or you know accomplishing something. And you know, I just I know that we grew up. You know, Ben Morgan and I lived across from each other in this apartment complex, and he we still text to this day, like long time ago, forty something years ago. And we would just, after school, it was always a regular routine where we'd meet up outside, we'd craft the plan for the day, right? We'd go do something. And <laughs> it just feels like entrepreneurship to me, right? Where you have you have your old friends, you always meet up, but you have a plan and a method. And yeah, it was it was great, great experience growing up. I wouldn't change one ounce of it. Is there a particular music video that if you saw on YouTube, if I sent you the link, you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's 80s MTV. That's what I remember. Oh my gosh. I I couldn't even begin to name them. You know, I, gosh, man, you're going to get me in trouble. If I start naming videos, it's again, right? People are going to go, oh, how could you like that? Or, I mean, you know, like we're judgment, that, we're judgment free here on leaders and legends. Yeah. Right. This, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, uh, let's just say, yeah, there are several, I won't name any of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it takes a lot to volunteer to join the military. My son volunteered. He was 11 Bravo, which is a combat infantryman. He did two tours in Afghanistan post 9-11. I have such tremendous love and respect for him, for him to, to step forward and do that when he didn't have to. What were you thinking as as you as you rode the bus or maybe you took a plane? My basic was at Fort Knox. So we t- took the bus down there from the MEP station there on South Pennsylvania, downtown. Indianapolis. <laughs> I was right there. What were you thinking as you as you got to your place for basic training? Like, were you scared? Were you think, hey, you know what? This is the right thing to do. How did it process for you? Absolutely terrified would be the way I would say it. And when you enter the, as you know, right, reception station, and you know they start yelling at you right away to get you off the bus and just tear. I mean, just it's it's literally they're beginning the deconstruction process the moment you pull on the property. And, you know, and you're thinking, I've been here 30 seconds. I couldn't have screwed up. Like, I literally have just been here on the bus for 30 seconds. Yeah. And I had, I, I'll never forget, I had uh, something fell out of my bag as I was coming out of the, 
the bus and hit the ground. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, I was just terrified. All I wanted to do was just disappear, really. That first, that was my my first thought was, what have I done? You know, and what's going to happen next? And you're just <laughs> terrified, to be honest. And I will say that I, I like you, really celebrate our, our our military, our first responders, anybody that runs the other way when trouble's happening, right? People that run to the the firefight or the fire or the accident to help, there's a different breed, right? And you really have to celebrate and honor that, I think, as a community, if you really want to reach your fullest potential. I can tell you right now, I had no noble, I I had no idea of what I was doing when I signed up. I didn't even know I was going to get 10% off at Lowe's out of the deal. But, uh, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, I was just, I was just trying to survive. I was trying to find my way and this was my very best choice to hit the path that I wanted to be on. And it was life-changing for me, I will tell you. I mean, I was thankfully a peacetime military service member. The the ones that do it today and the ones that go and give it their all and those that give all, right? I mean, we owe it to them and to their families and society to really honor, uh, celebrate, and support their sacrifice. And I just, I, I, I couldn't say more about the way I feel of our service members and first responders. And I think I wish more, I think a lot of people do. It, it seems to be a thing right now that we recognize. More so people. than ever. For sure. Yes. Certainly yep. in the post-Vietnam era. Yes. Do you, do you, oh, think it's, you think it's a coincidence? This is a softball question. It's a coincidence that so many of, of our state's strongest leaders have been in the military. Greg Ballard, Eric Holcomb, Bob Orr, Fred Klipsch, who was in the Air Force, Richard Luger, Andy Jacobs. I mean, the list goes on and on. Michael Browning, who's a Vietnam veteran. That's that's not correlation to you, is it? But rather causation. Yeah, I I agree. It is. Uh, well, we as a state were overrepresented anyway. I think in those that serve, I've seen stats that show concentration and percentages that that choose to enlist or commission. And and I think in Indiana, we grow up as kind of that servant leader uh, anyway, right? Just it's an ethos that's kind of born out of out of the communities where all of us grow up. And and so it's no surprise that many do go to serve. And yeah, I mean, I think we could, you could spend 30 minutes just naming names of leaders that have military experience. And I think it's fantastic. Coming out of the military, you know, you hear so many stories, especially these days with, with combat vets, but not just combat vets who aren't sure what to do. I've worked with some organizations. I know you have too, to try to help veterans. I was lucky in the sense that I knew what I wanted to do. I had no skills except what I could learn through college. What was your plan coming out of it and how close did you come to actuating it? Yeah, it's, I mean, I have to say that I was very fortunate to really come out of the military with a a plan. I knew what I wanted to do. I went in to do this. I went in to get money for college and everything that I did in college was geared towards getting the maximum return on that investment, right? I, I paid with literally leaving skin, you know, in concertina wire, you know, during drills. And, and I mean, I literally left nothing to chance here, right? I, I worked as hard as I could to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And so when I came out, I executed my plan. And I'm, I'm thankful to say uh, it involved a lot of, a lot of mentors and other Another great military service member, Dr. Bert Servas here in Indianapolis, was one that took me under under his wing. And, you know, now that I think about it, I, I've never really considered this, but I wonder if my military, I was fresh out, 
And he would, he'd spend time with me to coach me up on entrepreneurship and business. And I was in a program called the Indianapolis Entrepreneurship Academy in the 80s in Indy. Dr. Haberly down at IU had started this program. And through that, I met Dr. Burt. And I just, I learned so much about life and business through people like that that would spend time to, to share with me their lessons learned. And that's why I do that today with, with young entrepreneurs that want to spend time with me. Um, I'm happy to share experiences, right? That was one thing that I learned was to be careful about giving advice, but be generous with sharing experience. And the idea there is that if somebody comes to another for mentorship and the mentor just gives advice all day long, the person that takes that advice and goes and executes on it, you kind of own the outcome if you're the one that told them to go do that. But if you're going to share experiences about a time when you were in that situation or something similar, then what you're doing is giving them a lens into learning through history which I know you're a big fan of. And that's, a, I think, a, an optimized way to mentor and to learn and grow. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with local entrepreneur and veteran and patriot, John Wexler. We were talking about leaders and people in the military. I omitted to say the name of uh, P.E. McAllister, and he should have been the very first name that I mentioned. You're right. Indi- at one time, I think it was a few years ago, Indiana had the fourth largest National Guard in the country. When you figure our population relative to other states, that is, that's punching way, way above our mm-hmm. weight. Coming out of the military, executing your plan, why was Indiana, why was Indianapolis the place that you thought you could achieve these goals and do what you needed to do, what you set out to do? Great question. And it, it was my plan all along to come back and come back to my hometown. It, but it, it was subject to review. And I'll tell you that coming out of the military, you can elect to be a resident of any state, right? And I was in Texas at the time at Fort Hood and no state income tax, Florida, Carolina. There were a few places that were very attractive as a veteran to say, well, wait, maybe I just go there and, and, and start my life there. I had friends that were going off on oil rigs and making killer money and, and people that were going off and doing all kinds of other exciting things. And it challenged my thinking early on as to whether or not I wanted to really just come back and go to college, right? I ended up doing that, thankfully. And I will say, you know, it's probably one of the best decisions I ever made because of the amazing people that I was able to kind of work alongside over the last couple of decades. And the the culture of India at that time. I mean, you have to realize, you know, there there was no well when I left for the military, there was there was no Hoosier Dome. When I came back, there was. We had a pro sports team, right? When I, you know, <laughs> when I went away, you know, there there were all these things that were happening. The amateur sports capital of the world movement was just kind of starting. And we had kind of gotten our first glimpse into venture capital, even though I didn't know that world at the time. When I go back and look at history and you you look at at CID's formation in in Indy as one of the very first venture capital firms and what ended up happening there and the companies that they funded and, and helped grow. I, I, I think that was a time where Indianapolis as a city and, and central Indiana as a region was really starting to grow up. And I mean, I cannot think of a better time to be involved as a young, excited and excitable leader. And, and I, I just thrived. I mean, I, I can't think of a better place for me back in that era. When you came back, you came back, as you just said, to a different Indianapolis. But how much has it continued to change in the sense of a lot of what we talk about, what Indianapolis means now as compared to 30 years ago? You travel, you see people, entrepreneurs from all over the world. 
What do they talk about? What brings them to Indianapolis? It's it's amazing how Indianapolis is able to, and this is this is the to the credit of people of both parties and all religions and all orientations and just the general sense of of being a Hoosier. Why do you think Indianapolis has the reputation it does? Well, I, I think you just hit on it, right? That that diverse, that tapestry of people that welcome everyone, right? I, I think we're a welcoming community, we're hospitable. I think our, our practice with the Indy 500 over generations, right, where you learn that people swing their doors open, invite others in, show them a good time, and then parlaying that into NCAA-related events, whether it's you know swimming and diving or the basketball championships or the national football championship. I think we have just such a deep history in being an inviting and hospitable community that so many people know that of Indy, right? Not to mention, you know, if they've tried Shapiro's or Long's Donuts, <laughs> game over at that point. So, you know, I just think, you know, what I hear from people is, quite frankly, they're a little surprised at what industry really exists here and what companies have been started here. And I think that's one area where we could actually do a little bit better is to pick up a little a little uh, swagger and and a little bit of a chip on our shoulder, I believe, in telling our story better, right? I think that we should really be proud of the companies that have grown not only traditional industry, but in the current iteration of tech-dominated entrepreneurship, you know, people are really surprised sometimes to hear that the likes of, you know, Exact Target, uh, Angie's List, you've got, uh, you know, software artistry and interactive intelligence. When you look at these companies that were born here in Indy, a lot of times that story is not radiated around the country. And, you know, I think that's to our detriment. I really think we need to celebrate the incredible entrepreneurial culture that exists in our in our community, not only in Indy, but central Indiana and our state. And we have a long history of, of entrepreneurship that's currently being kind of represented by the that tech community. How much do our universities help, whether it's Rose Holman, Purdue, IU, I mean, we could name them all, Notre Dame, Butler, Marion, list goes on and on. Do we have a unique set of higher learning institutions in Indiana compared to, let's say, our our competitor states? Absolutely, right? I mean, I, we, if you look at the clustering of the research institutions that exist in Indiana, it's it's really a stunning. I mean, California, possibly the major metros, right, of, a, of the East Coast, like a New York or a Boston. But I mean, we are absolutely in the top tier of that. And And I think, again, back to this storytelling aspect of when we think of Indiana, we tend to think of uh, of the point institution, right, or the city. We don't think regionally right now, right? I mean, I think that's changing, and I, I do believe there's a lot a lot of really good things happening in that realm. But you know, when when you say to someone you're going to Silicon Valley, they don't think like, well, what city in Silicon Valley? Where, really, where are you going, right? It might be Cupertino, it might be San Jose, it could be San Fran, right? If you take that San Fran to San Jose stretch of real estate, you're talking about an hour and a half or two hours of driving. You're talking about a very big geography that somehow has managed to create a brand around what they built, which is amazing. I'm not minimizing that. What I am saying, though, is that we could benefit a little bit from trying to lump together Lafayette through Indy down to Bloomington, right? And start to think of that as a as a technology cluster, or heaven forbid, we reach out and pull Muncie into that, or Columbus with a Fortune 500 and very, very rich community there. 
I think that if we thought more as a region, right, and and I don't mean Silicon Prairie, or I don't mean I don't mean be corny about it, but I mean you know <laughs> let's think about what that cluster of research institutions and and talent means to our economy. And I really think that that's a fantastic story that needs to be developed, explored, and and continued to be cultivated. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, which is where I'm going to be in about an hour, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast is entrepreneur, veteran, and all-around tech genius, John Wexler. John, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most? Man, that's a uh, that's a tough challenge to pick one because I am motivated and I'm coached and mentored by so many that it would I'd really be doing a disservice to really pick one. But I can, you know, go back to this concept of mentorship and and leaders that led by example and they inspired really me and probably a generation but uh, so I'm going to cop out and not name a name if I can and talk about you know in abstract what I think that meant to me and that really boils down to me that I learned from a lot of people a lot a lot of times through storytelling not through firsthand experience and and to me it's really hard to understand sometimes as we get older and you know you get outreach from you know a college kid or somebody that's fresh out and they they're trying to learn learn the ropes sometimes just a coffee a 30 minute or an hour meeting can really change the arc of of someone's day you know and and therefore you know down the road it could be impactful in their life and there were so many people that did that for me when i i can't understand what would have justified that nor why I would have deserved the attention from someone like a Dr. Burke Servaz or, or, or you know, today I've, I mentioned David Becker as a, as a longtime mentor of mine. This is a guy that really has no reason at all to, at the time, right? You go back 20, 30 years ago, why would he spend time with me when, when asked? And he did. And I'm just eternally thankful that I was able to learn from today's current legends, right? You talk about that and then have a peer group of amazing entrepreneurs and tech innovators that that all kind of count each of us as community members and and aren't afraid to engage even sometimes you know I will say this Robert I mean the one thing that we've really lost is kind of that old guard ability to disagree without being disagreeable right and I I I have friends still to this day that we can even disagree a little bit on on the even big issues but we still manage to be able to get together and 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 talk, discuss, cuss and discuss, right? I mean it, but at the end of the day, we know we're still friends. And you know, that's something I'd like to see a little bit more of, to be honest. Is that prevalent in the tech community? The ability to set aside differences because the projects or the causes on which you're working are so important and impactful? I I I think so, actually. I mean, not not getting too deep into it, but I mean I do believe that that tech, like military, military service, is one of the pure meritocracies. Right? It really doesn't matter what your what your orientation is, what your your way of thinking, what your politics are. If you're together to solve a problem and you have the chops to build the code to solve the problem, to do the math, right? If you can if you can bring the goods, 
you're you're welcome on the team. And I think it's a great equalizer at the end of the day. I think entrepreneurship in general is really a great equalizer. And I think it's something we really need to inspire the next generation of youth to engage with. But tech enabled or innovation driven enterprise is a pursuit that changes lives and changes communities. There are a lot of public relations entrepreneurs. Some people call them boutique shops. My company, Veteran Strategies, is one of them. It's just me, and I could name several others, all who do amazing work, wonderful people. Um, But then there are folks who have a full-time job, for lack of a better term, and are thinking about starting out on their own or thinking about starting their own shop. And I'm sure you've talked to hundreds. I've talked to dozens. And one thing that, that nearly everyone says is something that I said, and I'm wondering if you said, and that is, quote, I just don't know if I have what it takes to be an entrepreneur, close quote. How do you talk to someone in a way that's giving you, it's giving them the best advice you can give without crushing their dreams? Well, I mean, look, I think the best thing we can do every day, all day to everyone is to be honest, right? There's, first of all, well, let's start with that. And if, if, if I see something that would tell me entrepreneurship isn't right for someone, I actually will say it. And I, I actually have some friends that have tried it and it wasn't right. And I've seen what happens there and it's not great. Right. And, and crushing, I, I don't view it at all as trying to crush their dreams. I think it's about let's find everybody's highest and best use. Let's find our spots. Um, the thing I would say that I'm a little more, uh, I have a little more contempt for is what I'll call the glamourpreneur or the pretenderpreneur. And, you know, those that, you know, a wannapreneur is okay, right? If they want to do it, they want to be in the game, right? They're trying to figure it out. But I thought you were going to go down the path of full-time jobs, just pretending to be entrepreneurs, right? That's like, man, that's kind of like, you know, pretending that you're something that you're not. And so that is one where I have a little more contempt, but if it's somebody that is coming out of college or a corporate executive, somebody that works at a large corporation and they're trying to decide if they want to do it, or somebody that's invested a lifetime in education, like a a doctor or a lawyer, or somebody that has years and years of education, they think they want to switch over to become an entrepreneur, you better make sure that's the right thing for you before you do that. And so to me, honest conversation and dialogue is is the key point. Obviously, with care and and consideration for how uh, that's going to impact their life going forward. But some of the best conversations that I've ever had with people about entrepreneurship are ones that ended up with both of us agreeing they probably shouldn't do this uh, with their life. And I think it's one of the best things we can do. Not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. In your opinion, does government slash the tax code slash the business community do enough to help entrepreneurs to foster the sense that they can make it? Or conversely, are there too many obstacles in the way of someone who or people who are willing to take a chance and start something new? What would you do if you could be the Pontifex Maximus of the entrepreneurial regulation world? Oh, man, that should terrify everybody, that question. In fact, yeah, that would be fun someday to, uh, to really be able to impact it in that way. I think uh, Indiana specifically, we do a fantastic job. I think there's always areas where we can do better. But, you know, things that we've done that are truly innovative and kind of put us at least in the top tier of, of geographies to start a business would be things like the venture capital investment tax credit, right, where we as a state 
say that if if you, Robert, as an investor, want to invest in my company, and I'm certified by the state as a as an eligible enterprise, you get a 25% tax credit back for putting that money in my business, right? So that means if you put, you know, for every dollar you put in, you're going to get a quarter back on your taxes right away. The net effect there is that it de-risks your decision to invest in my business. And, and you do that by looking at the net after-tax cost of you giving me that investment. And if something bad were to happen and you were to write it off and you get half of it back, let's say through state, federal, et cetera, you now are down to really risking you know, maybe 25, 30, 35% of that total that you put in. That's a really unbelievable thing. And I wish more people understood how important that is to capital formation uh, and, and entrepreneurial growth in our state. I will say also that the state uh, is adding uh, in, let's see, in the coming year, uh, veteran status will get you an enhanced 5% kicker on that, along with minority uh, and women uh, enterprises. So MBEs and veterans uh, get a 30% tax credit now through the venture capital investment tax credit. That's just one idea uh, that was implemented many years ago and continues to, I think, feed capital formation. So you know, I think we can always do better, but Indiana in general, I think is a very hospitable place for entrepreneurship and innovation. What makes an entrepreneur go beyond, in your view, go beyond just the first bite at the apple? I remember Wayne Heisinga, Waste Management, I think was his company. And then mm -hmm. he started this other company called Blockbuster. And I just, he was, he owned the Miami Dolphins are my favorite football team. That's the reason that I focused on him for just a second in the sense that I'm like, man, how the hell did you come up with those two things? Like, I can't think of anything. What's, what's, what's the relationship between the two and the relationship between the two is entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and recurring revenue. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I think he understood the power uh, you know, of that in particular. And by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I heard that I am, uh, following. Are we okay to talk about guests? I, I don't know how this uh, time sure. is. All right. So I hear that I'm I'm the next guest after the legendary number 39 from, from the Dolphins and Larry Zonka. So that's something I never thought I would say that we would even be considered <laughs> in the same sentence, but I just did it. But, you know, I think, first of all, entrepreneurship at that level is a whole different game, right? And when you look at that kind of scale of enterprise, that is a, a totally different game. But I think there is an intrinsic drive within entrepreneurs that truly motivates every day's activities. And, and there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are taught, right? You can, I believe entrepreneurship is a science that you can teach, just like medicine, just like law, right? There's always been this, like, at least when I was growing up, we talk about 70s and 80s, there was this idea that entrepreneurs are just, this, it's this black box, black magic thing. And it's like, well, they're just born an entrepreneur. But you can learn how to be a lawyer and you can learn how to be a doctor. I think that we have really evolved into this understanding that entrepreneurship is something that can be studied, can be learned, it can be taught and transferred the lessons over time. And, and to me, the idea that doctor, lawyer, entrepreneur is kind of a, a choice that people can now make and entrepreneurship schools exist. You've got most major business programs now have entrepreneurship as a major. You can get a minor if you're a technical person and, and support you know, your engineering degree with an entrepreneurship designation. So I, I think that there are a couple of different types of entrepreneurs, but the ones that are truly driven out of a, an innate desire to be an entrepreneur, those are, those are the really unique ones that will kind of defy the odds and, and almost change, you know, change the rule, bend the rules to their will. 
at the end of the day. And and Heisinga and some of those other entrepreneurs like that, they're the ones that really are are that special breed. This is going to preface a question I'll ask you at the end of the podcast, but I'll give you a you get it you get an, a special a special opportunity to answer. If you could have dinner with Elon Musk, what would you ask him? Ooh, ooh, um, it's a good question. Or choose another entrepreneur, right? I mean, Jeff Bezos. Choose someone else who you know is in the news and has has built you know companies that are just absolutely gigantic. You know, it would probably it would probably zero in on that that motivation question, right? What is it that gets you out of bed? You know, when you are, you know, at, again at that level, or even successful entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs, right? How do you continue the drive? I mean, I'm incredibly motivated at at my age and at my stage of career, and so I don't feel like I necessarily have a problem with that. But I do wonder. I'm like. You know, at a certain point, what makes you want to continue to start that next company and and invest that next decade in in another challenge? And and you know, I think that is something that I'm I'm always curious about. How do you focus that energy and that drive? And and what is it ultimately that drives somebody like an Elon Musk? That's uh, be a fantastic dinner for sure. Which is harder, creating a company and make it sustainable? or scaling it, growing it beyond the initial seed? So which is harder in my experience, and I I don't have a ton, I don't know. I mean, it's an opinion. So let's take it at that. I think starting something, for me at least, it's it's never easy, but I kind of a little bit have a formula for exploration and understanding how you find fit, how you find product market fit. And you know, I'm a I'm a big believer. Just had a we've had several conversations today about the importance of focus on on like what product are we making? How how are we going to do this? And had an interesting twist on this idea of what focus really means. And if in the early stages, the focus of an enterprise is to find that product market fit and get traction, that might actually mean a a series of experiments that are very far and wide, right? And you may be trying a bunch of different things. And while you're focusing on a maybe a, a horizontal process that goes across all these different product ideas, you're not focused on an individual product to launch it until you know for sure that you have that fit. That's where the scale comes in. So I think when you're in a business that's scaling, the thing that would make it relatively, I think, more manageable is that you already have that product market fit and you are into a little bit of the management science of building a company. You know, Michael Cloran is a friend of mine here in Indy that he's a partner at Developer Town and he talks about management science. Once you manage, once you hire an HR director or you get a company to, let's say, 100 employees, you're kind of leading through others at that point. When you're a small startup that's trying to find its way, you know, like at SpokeNote right now, I mean, there are eight or nine of us and and some contractors that spend time with us. But I mean, it's a very small team. It's a lot easier to lead in that way than it is to lead through others. Let's talk a little bit about SpokeNote. That's your newest endeavor. What does it do and why does it do what it does? Well, that's great. Uh, thank you. So SpokeNote is a platform that allows anyone to add video to anything. So you go, okay, what does that mean? In the abstract notion, right? I want people to wonder for a minute what that means. But what we sell today is a is a sticker that allows you to scan. You can scan the sticker, you record a video, and then when you publish it or upload, pair up with that sticker, wherever you put the sticker 
the video that you associated with it plays. So in a lot of ways, you think of it as the digital equivalent of the sticky note, right? So if you're an Airbnb host and you want to show someone how the coffee machine works, you just do a scan, smile, share, scan the code, smile and record your video, put the sticker on the coffee machine, and the next person that scans it will see that video. That's at its simplest form what we do. What's the market for it in the sense, is it something that where demand has created the need for supply or is this so so innovative, a new idea that it's people are like, well, I didn't know that I wanted to do that, but now I do. Yep. Uh, it's a great question. So it's a I think it's a a, a confluence of a, a couple of different things. First of all, let's let's talk about kind of the macro, you know, what's going on here. And the, the QR code was on its way to obscurity really before the pandemic hit. And I've always said that the QR code was the comeback technology of the pandemic, right? I mean, you couldn't go, you can't go into a restaurant today without seeing QR codes and scanning it to order or get information or, or something like that. So number one, there was a technology adoption that happened during the pandemic that made QR code-based communication very, very prevalent. Second, people are working from home and working from anywhere and we're all remote and disconnected a little bit. And there's a there's a need, for instance, to onboard remote employees like it was never even a thing before. And now all of a sudden there are companies that specialize in it. And so now we give the CEO of a company, whether it's five people or 50 or 500, the ability to record a message, put it in with the onboarding box, and then have the employee receive that package and view the video. So we're solving problems that are currently being solved with other methods. For instance, we were talking today about the floral industry. And I asked the question, what problem does sending flowers solve? <laughs> not, not like, what did you do to have to send flowers? But what, what makes someone send flowers? And the idea is that it's a way to convey emotion. It's a way to convey a sentiment. It's a way to do this, that, and another. And, and I think you can... Uh, do a search and replace and put spoke note in place of some major gifting categories and say, okay, I think we enhance that gifting category, but we are we are a way to convey emotion, sentiment, and, and really bring the world closer together using video. And that's what we're building as a platform that will do that at scale. We have a few minutes left on the Leaders and Legends podcast with entrepreneur and Army veteran John Wexler. When people talk about the tech, tech sector, what are they really talking about in the sense of does just using the umbrella term do the complexity and diversity and potential of the tech sector justice? I, I don't believe that it does. And, and I kind of interchange when people talk about tech, I do tend to think of it in, more in terms of the innovation economy. And there are a lot of ways to introduce technology into the world. It doesn't have to be bits and bytes and feeds and speeds and software. It can be an innovation in culinary. It can be an innovation in building materials. It can be an innovation in the way you deliver a service. And so I think technology is an easy way for people just to say that, I mean, the tech sector is huge. Don't get me wrong. I mean, software, you know, and the related businesses are, are gigantic. But I think the bigger picture is where does innovation fit in the grand scheme of things? And, you know, there's a white paper that was written several years ago by a gentleman at MIT by the name of Bill Allet, A-U-L-E-T. 
He wrote a book called Disciplined Entrepreneurship, but his white paper with Fiona Murray, I believe was the the other, the co-author, is called A Tale of Two Entrepreneurs. And it talks about the difference between an innovation-driven enterprise and a traditional small business person. And I think, you know, when you look at an innovation-driven enterprise, they have six attributes that really kind of are hallmarks of what would make that company be called an innovation-driven enterprise. And if we can invest more time and energy in helping people build those kinds of companies, those are the companies that create wealth for not only the shareholders and employees and the founders, but their communities because they bring money in from around the world. So if you create a solar panel manufacturing company, right, that's based in Fishers and the the company there pays great wages, they have higher education, they have graduate degrees and salaries that are above average, right, but they sell to the world. And so, you know, we would ship product to Singapore, let's say, Japan, any place in the world, and then that money would come right into our community, or it would then be used by the people. This is a little bit of trickle-down concept, right? That you have those high-paid workers that then use it in the traditional small businesses, like the dry cleaner, the pizza shop, and, and those kinds of shops, right? That tend, only, tend, tend to work in a trade radius, and they only sell to a, a smaller audience they tend to create less wealth than those innovation-driven enterprises, but they are very, very important parts of our local economy because they circulate the, the capital that's in that community. And so, you know, when you look at the role of innovation, I think it's a true game changer to equalize the game for anyone, whether you're two kids in a garage in Lagodi, Indiana, or you're a, a kid growing up in Fishers, we all have the same opportunity to pursue a career, learn how to code and build an innovation company. And and that's really where I've spent most of my career. What was the last invention or innovation that you read about or saw that made you go, damn, I wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> oh, man, there was one the other day because I said that out loud. But I will tell you, I read yesterday about the first known software developer in the world. And it goes back. You'll appreciate this, I think, as a history fan. It's an 18... 40s, maybe 1850s vintage. And it was the daughter of a poet. And she was belie- she is believed to be the very first person to conceptualize an operation uh, that today would be viewed as software code, right? And it had to do with meeting a mathematician and a philosopher and hearing stories from them. And she put that in to a construct and her name was Ada. And for those that are in military or have spent time in the military and, and in or coding, ADA is a language, actually, that was uh, developed in the 70s by the U.S. military. And they paid homage to ADA, the daughter of the poet, as the known first software developer. And that was one that I just read about yesterday. I didn't know that. And I think it's, it's really cool that we can celebrate that the very first coder was, was actually a girl named ADA. And there's a lot more out there on the internet on the story, but that was an innovation and invention and inventiveness story that I read and was just captivated by. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. John Wexler, are you ready? I, I'm not sure. I guess I have to do it. So let's go for it. I'm not, I don't know the questions. <laughs> That's nice. the point. All right. What was your first job? Cooking corn at the Indiana State Fair. No wonder you and Jennifer Hollowell are so good, such good friends. <laughs> she loves the State Fair. Oh, I love it Number too. Number two, what was your first concert? 
Ah, it was either, I think it was Aerosmith with, I think Foreigner might have been the warm up act, actually. So it was a pretty good classic rock show. Market yes. Square, I think. Yeah, Market Square Arena. That's pretty good. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Ooh, man. Okay. So I have in my bookcase at home a hand me down book that has my grandfather's name in it and his writing notes in the margins. And it's Dale Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it sounds kind of like, wait a minute, that sounds kind of manipulative. <laughs> but it's 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 really a book about social graces and social influence and, you know, from absolutely one of the best ever. So I'd say that. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. I did witness the Berlin Wall coming down. Man, that's a good question. I, I, for some reason, go to Martin Luther King's speech uh, on the lawn. I listen to the speech to this day, and I'm captivated and moved by it. So that's probably where I go. We mentioned Elon Musk earlier, so you get to choose someone else if you want. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, my gosh. That is a ridiculously tough question. I'd probably sit down with Bill Gates. You want to say why? I was going to ask you why. Well, I think that he may be above so many others. There are maybe you know a handful that have literally changed the world with with a vision and and building an enterprise that has just impacted the world. And then you know his move into social entrepreneurship, I'm I'm fascinated with. And yeah, I'd love to have just a couple of hours. That would be amazing. Actually, I would I would prepare for weeks uh, if that were to ever happen. Like it would be like, I'm sorry, I'll have to get to you next year. I'm preparing for my lunch with Bill Gates. <laughs> and you'd say, get the dessert at Iozo's, Bill. Exactly. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Hoosier entrepreneur and veteran, John Wexler. Thank you so much for your time. I've known you for a couple of years now, and you've always been incredibly kind to me. I'm very appreciative of the fact that, that you've come on the podcast, and I would say with complete candor and, and genuine belief, Indiana needs more people like you in our state, and we're very grateful. Well, Robert, thank you for having me. You're awfully kind with your words uh, from me, and, and I appreciate the service that you do in, in bringing stories like this to life. And I've always appreciated your passion for history, uh, storytelling, and engaging, and it's something to be applauded. So thank you so much for being so nice to me. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.